What you are hearing is from a video called A Day in the Life of the 1989 NSF Net. It was posted on YouTube by Hans Werner Braun in 2020. You heard from Hans Werner in the previous episode. This video is actually why I wanted to talk to him in the first place. It starts with Hans Werner, who's holding the camera, taking the elevator up to the NSFnet offices with his then eight-year-old daughter, Karen. Hans Werner is walking Karen through the dreary office, filled with computer terminals and whiteboards scribbled with notes. It's hard to hear the conversations Karen has with her dad's coworkers because of the constant hum of computers. Gee whiz. Where'd you get that nice toy? (laughs) Karen, at this point, is perched on a desk next to her dad's workmate. She's got her light brown hair into slightly lopsided pigtails. Just like I used to wear my hair when I was a young girl playing with the dollhouse my dad built me after he retired from managing the ARPANET. My daughter Elizabeth now wears her hair in the same style of lopsided pigtails that I try to make every morning. Do you have some of those at home? I have one, but bigger. Uh, oh, you got the big ones? The whole video just confirms everything I've been told about daily life working and networking from our computer freaks. The mess of wires, the nerdy chatter, the prevalence of handlebar mustaches. They even gather in a conference room at one point, grab cans of Coke from a case sitting on the table, and help themselves to slices of pizza. That's all the black stuff. I hate it. Veggie. What'd you say? All veggie? All the possible vegetables you put on it? Where's the plates? <laughs> hey, come back. Pizza. Why didn't you order any pizza? After watching this video, I've been thinking about Karen. We have so much in common. She's not much younger than I am. She also has two young kids. And our dads are founding fathers of the internet. We are both worrying about the same thing. How do you protect your kids from the worst parts of the internet? Hans Werner himself is worried about his grandkids using this technology he helped create. I have a little granddaughter. She's eight years, I have two granddaughters, but one is fairly local. And I'm really worried about her since she uses the internet extensively. I think pretty much every single day. How old is she, you said? She's the girl on the video that you actually saw. Yes, yes, so your granddaughter is eight, you said? My granddaughter is eight. She was, she's her daughter. She, oh, wonderful, okay. So her daughter is like at the age of the girl and the daughter in the video. So she's eight? My son's eight, that's what I was just asking. I think she's eight. It changes every year, so it's hard to keep track of. <laughs> I've been talking for months to my father's co-workers and contemporaries about what they did and what they intended. But it's my generation and my children's generation who are left to deal with what they made for us, the amazing parts and the terrible parts. So I reached out to Karen and Hans Werner's other daughter, Sandra, to talk about the world our fathers built and the unintended consequences we have to navigate. This is Computer Freaks from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Hani Dare Bryan. Chapter 6 Unintended Consequences.
So what I just really wanted to chat with you about was less even as a journalist, but more as like a daughter whose father worked on an early internet project and a parent just coming from the background you came from, having a father who's a kind of a, arguably a founding father. Yeah, so I kind of always, I don't know if joked is the right word, but kind of like nonchalant was like, oh yeah, my dad helped make the internet. And it really wasn't until you reached out to me that I found out I was being serious and I didn't know. So like, I knew he had something somewhere, but you know, I kind of said it to be cool and not really realizing that it was true. I can relate to Karen. I had known my dad had worked on the ARPANET, but I had no idea what that meant. He was just my dad. She just knew that her childhood was different than other kids growing up because of what her dad did for a living. So growing up the way I did, I had access to computers at an early age. And so I've been using computers since I was four. In 1984, there were research departments at universities that still couldn't get on the ARPANET or internet, let alone school-aged kids. So four-year-old Karen was way ahead of any of her peers by the time the internet became more ubiquitous in the early 90s. We actually had this little Macintosh Plus that he got to borrow from the computer center. So I was able to use a computer every day when I was probably in middle school, you know, the early 90s. And I remember my friend using AOL and I was just like, why? (laughs) You know, like you can get on the internet without it. But today, as we all know, kids are practically born with an iPhone in their hands. If you remember back to the start of this series, when I began to investigate my dad's role in the ARPANET, I found myself torn over my dad's assertions that this technology shouldn't be accessible to everyone. As a journalist, I believe in free and open access to the internet. But as a mom, the internet can be a terrifying place. I want to say like, oh, my kids aren't on devices as much, but like since my mom died and there's like stuff to deal with, like, yes, (laughs) it's going to happen. Yeah. Recently when I switched jobs, they switched to doing nine hour days. And because I wanted to get off at the same time, I start earlier, so I've been more tired. And so they do use their phones when I'm trying to just kind of catch up on sleep which is nice to have something to be like, okay, either watch TV or use your phone. How do you navigate it though? Like my almost nine-year-old loves World War II. So he's wanted to watch YouTube videos and with something like World War II, he loves the planes. He loves the kind of stories of fighter pilots, but then anything World War II related, you just have to be so careful on content. So they do play some games on their phone. So they do have their own cell phones. I got them the Apple Watches that had cellular just so that I can know where they're at at school and track them and have them be able to reach out to us. Like I just picked up my kids from school yesterday and my daughter said she was about to call me because she didn't see I was in the pickup line. The phones are kind of restricted. They can't have YouTube on their phones because, you know, we want the content restricted. Karen's approach to handling her kids' exposure to the internet is pretty much how most parents, including myself, handle it. It's tough to keep saying no to your kids when they want the newest piece of technology that their friends have. My husband and I recently got our son Henry a watch, 
that lets him call three phone numbers, his mom, dad, and babysitter. We are not convinced that was a good idea. But Karen's younger sister, Sandra, is far more restrictive with her children's access to the internet. That may be because Sandra herself had a different experience with technology when she was a kid. There was this text-based game she used to play called MUD. It stands for multi-user dungeon. It was a bunch of people, primarily in their teens or 20s, who would just hang out and talk. And it was a little bit like WoW in that it was a world that you could build, but it was text-based. There were no pictures or no graphics. There were no images, nothing like that. So you would okay. whatever you wanted, like rooms that you could walk around in and you would have to describe each room with text. And you could talk to people either directly or everyone as a group. Am I making sense? Yeah, so it was like almost like a chat room situation. That you could walk around in, almost. This is one of several chat room-type programs Sandra used as a kid and in her early teens. She would run into some people who would make fun of her username or just be generally creepy. But like most things on the internet, there really were no safeguards. I don't know how appropriate it really is for an eight-year-old to be interacting with a whole bunch of predominantly teenage boys and boys in their early 20s. It just doesn't seem quite appropriate. The people on the MUDs weren't as weird as the random people you would meet on something like ICQ or something. I don't know if you ever used that particular program. It was just a chat thing. And you would get random people talking to you. And I had this one guy who was like, hey, come meet me and don't tell your parents. And I was like, no, no, that sounds like a really bad idea. How old were you? Uh, I think I was 14 at the time. Oh, God. Yeah. That's so scary. As a parent, it's just scary, you know? Yeah, I feel like have things happen when you're a kid and that's just like how it is. And then you look back on it with an adult perspective and it gives you a totally different perspective on things where you're like, wow, that is scary. In many ways, the social aspects of the internet from email to chat rooms to Facebook are the embodiment of JCR Licklider's notion of the intergalactic network. Connecting people, not just computers, moved the world forward in incredible ways. But as Sandra learned, And as every one of you listening to this knows, the internet expanded the impact of bad actors as well. Year after year, we hear more news about online harm. Online hate is reaching record highs. The internet, a cell phone, or even a driver's license are tools thieves can use to steal your identity. This information is going viral. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation says is on the rise. Rates of harassment have increased by nearly every measure and within almost every demographic. In 2016, the Russian government orchestrated cyber attacks on our nation for the purpose of influencing our election. The shooter posted a manifesto on 8chan 
that said he did it to protect white people. The pandemic has given a boost to conspiracy theories like those propagated by QAnon. He was the third mass shooter connected to 8chan this year. With its claim that Satan-worshipping pedophile elites are running our lives. 8chan evolved into a place where people celebrate mass shooters in real time. Rates of harassment have increased dramatically over the past year. 51%, according to the new survey of teens, reported some form of online harassment. That's up from just 36% in 2022, and 33% of all adults experienced online abuse. Some young teenagers have made these purchases online on a social media app, paid with an app, just ran out of the house, got on their bicycle, rode down the street, picked up the drug and came back, and the parents never knew. We've investigated cases uh, with children as young as 14. We've spent the last six episodes unpacking the amazing history behind the founding of the internet. The conversations I've had, the stories I've heard, have been truly thought-provoking and awe-inspiring. As a journalist, it's hard not to get caught up in the intrigue, controversy, and drama that led to the technology that drives the global economy. But after talking with Karen and Sandra, I'm brought back to what I deal with every day as a mom. The internet is not like my dollhouse. It's not the safe, precious world my dad wanted. It's the internet my dad feared and why I started investigating the story in the first place. Did the founding fathers of the internet get it wrong? And could they have done more to safeguard against the inevitable harms like harassment, disinformation, and hate speech? Do you ever blame your father for the world he helped create? No. No. I don't feel like he's responsible for other people's choices. Yeah, that's fair. What was provided was a valuable tool, and a tool can be used in a good way or it can be used in a bad way, and I don't see him as responsible for that. I feel like a lot of good things came from the internet, too. Of course, a lot of good things came from the internet. But... Like a lot of you listening, I'm frustrated that I have to juggle these burdens every single day. So after the break, I'm going to ask the founding fathers of the internet what they think of their legacy and these unintended consequences. Computer Freaks is brought to you by Inc. Business Media. Inc. is here to support the American entrepreneur through its journalism, recognition programs like the Inc. 5000, live events like Inc. Founders House, and small peer-to-peer networking. We aim to inform, educate, and elevate the profile of our community, the risk-takers, the innovators, and the ultra-driven go-getters who create our future. For more essential journalism like Computer Freaks, go to Inc.com and subscribe to Inc. Unlimited to experience the full offering of writing, video, and podcasts. So much of my time at NBC News was shepherding these coverages of online harm. And I'm a big believer in the First Amendment. You know, I dedicated my career to preserving the First Amendment. But I did see that when you edit enough pieces about 
children buying drugs on Snapchat and dying or cyberbullying. It did make me wonder if things could have been done differently in the early days. But remember, when you're talking about Snapchat and Facebook and all of that, you're talking about something that probably happened in the 2000s and beyond. That's Bob Kahn, who you've heard over the last few episodes. Bob, along with Vince Cerf, are probably the two people most responsible for the foundations of the internet. Bob is a really impressive person who deserves a bigger place in history. But I'll be honest, I wanted to hear some accountability, which may be unfair to Bob. As we've explained in this series, there are hundreds or more people who had a hand in building the internet. This is especially true as the internet got bigger and bigger. The internet as a whole really became widespread accessible in the early 1990s. So you're in an internet environment, you're into a multiple net environment, you're into commercial access. If you go back to the ARPANET days, we had almost none of that back in those days. So it was not an ARPANET issue, it was really pretty well controlled and very tightly controlled. Once it opened up, um, then you had a little many more issues that potentially could have shown up if it was not a controlled, I mean, NSF was not trying to control the NSFnet the way DARPA was trying to control the ARPANET. But when you got to the NSFnet, eventually you got into the commercialized version of the internet, that's when there was no central control over what went on in there as much. And that's when all of these kind of issues happened. I was, in my discussions with Tim Berners-Lee in the early days, that was one of the real concerns. If you wanted us to take involved in the, the web, how are we going to deal with issues like disinformation and not knowing who the users are and the like in order to deal with that in an effective way? And we never did get a resolution to that. My dad is really fond of Bob Kahn and has tremendous respect for him. I do too. But I'm frustrated with his characterization of the problems that started with the ARPANET. When we talked to Jake Feinler in episode three, she made it clear that some of these issues were apparent then. In hindsight, it should have been foreseeable that issues like online harassment would become more and more catastrophic. While Khan's response wasn't what I was looking for, some of the founding fathers of the internet do think about what they could have done differently in the first place. Bob Metcalf who recently became a grandfather, talked to me about this. I asked him the same thing I asked Khan. Could they have done anything different? There's probably 20 answers to that question, but the one I'm hung up on has to do with anonymity. It became the, the uh, intelligentsia who built the internet put anonymity at the top of their priorities. And it had something to do with privacy Privacy and security and anonymity all got mixed up. So the internet was built where anonymity was the default. By the way, I'm not sure where this quote comes from. I think it's from Lord of the Flies. But the quote is, the mask is the first step towards savagery. And so anonymity, you know, let's loose these uh, negative forces. 
And I think that accounts for much of the pathologies of today's internet. There is and there was too much anonymity. But anonymity wasn't the only problem that Metcalf envisioned. Another answer to your question is, the original ARPANET did not consider economics. How would this network be built? Who would pay for it? There were some people, of course, who wanted it to be free, which is really cheap. And there were some people who wanted a subscription model. And then these two lawyers in Arizona started advertising on the ARPANET. And it basically said, there's a green card lottery taking place. And if you want help to get into the lottery, come to us, pay us, and we'll help you get in. That's Len Kleinrock. He calls this advertisement from these lawyers a spam message. But this was just the start of what became one of the main ways to monetize the internet, according to Metcalf. And then advertising took off. Basically, it was advertising that saved the internet. It paid for it. But the intelligentsia of the internet, they hate advertising because it's just a crass and commercial and it's lies and all that stuff. Those son of a guns were advertising on our research network. How dare they? But it reached a lot of people. We got so upset, the community, we sent email back to them and said, stop. You can't do this. Cease and desist. Shame on you. How dare you? But the cat was out of the bag now. The commercial world saw, wow, what a wonderful thing this internet is. It's a means to get at consumers and to be able to sell things to them. So the internet, instead of being this glorious, wonderful thing with magnificent functionality, they were trying to sell detergent on our internet. It became a shopping mall. It became a gossip chamber. It became an entertainment channel. And it took a hard left turn in the direction to which you're referring now, where all of the dark side of the internet was clearly emerging in spades now, strongly. Talking to Len and Bob, it was refreshing that they shared some of my anger and so the, the question in front of us now is, will it be able to correct itself? Will it be able to rid itself of some of these atrocities? Or is the internet um, heading down a spiral that's gonna be almost impossible to recover from? And that's an open question right now. The cynical take would be that the problems of the internet are too far gone, that we have been in a spiral that can't correct itself. Len has thought not just about problems, but possible solutions, or at least how to approach solving the problem. The players here, there's the uh, commercial companies, there's the government, there's a scientific community, and there's a user base. The role of the government, in my mind, should be to provide a forum for these stakeholders to engage and discuss some of these issues, not to impose, maybe put on some restrictions that require a global nature. The commercial companies, and they're starting to, but they're going slowly, should provide protection, should ask users, what privacy policy would you like applied to you? 
Now, until just a few years ago, Facebook would never ask you, what privacy policy do you want? In fact, in order to understand their privacy policy, you might be able to access a document, a legal document, 20, 30 pages long, which doesn't tell you anything you can understand. So what the commercial companies need to do is to explain what they're doing to you in a simple graphical form. But social media companies have argued that they've made improvements. They do remind you to review your privacy settings in easy-to-read formats. So why aren't things better? And the last is the scientific community has to provide some solutions. I've mentioned some. There's something called homomorphic encryption, which provides a good level of privacy and secrecy. There were some other ways to approach this. But those four constituencies need to get together. And frankly, the group I think which is most delinquent in all of this is us. It's we as the users. We don't complain enough. We don't demand performance on the part of the things we want to use, we're forced to use, and force them to have an understandable and proper behavior. But I think that's beginning to come now with some of the, the groups that are being formed. That's nice to say, but how exactly are we supposed to engage? I can barely keep up with my son's YouTube watching, let alone take on multi-billion and trillion-dollar tech companies and persuade them to make a better, safer internet. So I'm still struggling with the state of the internet we are all left to deal with. It may sound like a strained comparison, but how overwhelmed I feel about the state of the internet is like how I feel about the situation with my dad. I sometimes find myself just wishing things were different, but they aren't. So for the most part, I have just kept my head down and gotten on with sorting out what my father left me. How I was left to clean up the loose ends of his life. Things like fixing up and selling his house as his memory slips away. I've surprisingly survived all of that. But the tipping point for me is the dollhouse. He left me to renovate and pass on to my daughter. It's become the target of all of my anger and frustration. I started the series telling you about this amazing dollhouse my dad built for me that I loved to play with as a child and then abandoned. For years, it stood neglected in the corner of my bedroom and then over time, it was relegated to my parents' basement. The yellow paint chipped away, the shingles fell off, the interior walls collapsed. But after I told my parents we were pregnant with Elizabeth, my dad got to work trying to piece it back together for her, a task he had to soon abandon to care for my mom and then himself. So it was left to me and my husband to finish. For what felt like a long time, I felt like I was drowning trying to fix the pieces that my father left me. And we still have more to fix. But it's back to a place where my daughter can play with it and build her own world with it, just like I did when I was a kid. What's going on right now? What are the dollhouse people doing? Some of the dollhouse people are sleeping and some are reading. What are they reading? 
They're reading dragon stories and dinosaur stories. Oh my goodness, there's a lot of people in that room. How many people are sleeping in that one room? That one room. One, two, three, four, five, six. Even in my daughter's make-believe dollhouse world, the internet exists. Oh look, you have your, um, your is this your iPad or your iPhone for your That's dollhouse the people? iPhone. The iPad and the laptop, I don't know where they are. Oh, you lost them? No, I don't know. Should I put them in the flower bag? There's this flower bag. I don't know where I put the flower bag. You, oh, you put them in a flower bag. Okay. I don't see the flower bag. So do your dollhouse people, do they have screen time or can they watch whatever they want? These people, they can watch whatever they want. So even all the dollhouse people use iPads? Yeah. Okay. And sometimes they're allowed to use her phone, but there's no Netflix on the phone. You can call on it. You can watch YouTube videos. You can watch YouTube videos. You can watch everything except Netflix and Disney. But you can get internet in your dollhouse? Yes. It's not clear how much my daughter understands how the creator of her dollhouse is also a creator of the technology she has her dollhouse people use. So what do you know about this dollhouse, about who built this dollhouse? Your dad built this dollhouse. Yes. And who's my daddy? Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe, yes. And what else did Grandpa Joe also build, do you know? Um, no. Do you know he worked on the internet, making the internet? Uh-huh. Yeah, I know he was on the internet. Do you know what that is? No. The dollhouse was, uh, I guess, just to capture a little bit of the uh, construction of a start of a network. That's what it was. And the dollhouse was essentially taking thoughts you know, and building a, a structure. But it was a structure for dolls, you know, and uh, it built up from there. So Elizabeth loves playing with the dollhouse. She plays with it every single day. Great. That's what I want to see. I want to get out of here and see that. I called my dad a few weeks ago to check in on him. He needs 24-hour care now. But he is doing as well as he can be. And one thing that seems to comfort him is to talk about the dollhouse. So what does it mean to you for the dollhouse to be passed on to Elizabeth and then maybe continuing to her children someday? I think it's great. I think that uh, it's great that she's building upon that dollhouse. And it's growing and it becomes bigger and bigger. It's not going to be a full dollhouse, but it'll be something that she can build upon and create uh, other dollhouses, maybe, and uh, build that into something that she can enjoy and maybe her kids can enjoy, too. My dad has reached a point in his decline that he can't separate the ARPANET and the dollhouse in his mind. They are both projects he is incredibly proud of making. For that reason... He wants them both to be cherished and protected. I just think it's interesting that you are worrying about what could happen to the ARPANET 
long before anyone else was. You were worried about computer freaks. You were worried about people using it for bad things. Yeah, that's what I was worried about, but it came out okay. It's surprising that it did, but it did come out okay, and I'm glad that my and others liked what happened to it. Yeah, the freaks out there that tried and ruin it, but I think it, it all came through, not just what we wanted, but close to it, and uh, it built upon a magnificent thing. My dad seems to have found peace with the world the Arbonette sparked, even though it wasn't what he wanted. He could easily have been just as angry as I am sometimes at what the internet is now. But what I have learned through making this podcast, through all of the battles and betrayals I have reported on, is that I think we all need to find some peace with the state of the internet and focus on what we can do from here. The same way I need to find peace with what my dad left behind for me to clean up, like the dollhouse. Someone wise once told me, when I felt like giving up on refurbishing what's really just a toy, that my dad did the hardest part, just by building the dollhouse in the first place. Even though I will continue to curse the founders of the internet as I try to pry devices out of my kids' hands, maybe I need to apply this perspective to the internet. My dad and the computer freaks did the hardest part. The rest is up to us. I think you built something really great, Daddy. Yeah. I thought so, too. Computer Freaks is a production of Inc. Magazine. This is the final episode, and I'd like to thank you for coming on this journey with me. I'd especially like to thank everyone who spoke to us for this series, who both worked on the ARPANET and who had recorded its history. And a final thank you to everyone at Inc. and Mensuedo Ventures, who helped make every aspect of Computer Freaks possible. Computer Freaks is a production of Inc., created and hosted by myself. Christine Hani Dare Bryan. Our executive producer and editor is Josh Christensen. Associate producer is Sophie Codner. Music by James Jackman. Sound design and mixing by Nicholas Torres. Editorial oversight by Scott Emilianuk and Stephanie Meta. Computer Freaks is dedicated to my dad, Major Joseph Hani.